This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Frank Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. Our guest consists of experts like the world's leading authority on long-term economic growth, Bob Gordon. We will continue to see jobs created rather than destroyed. Former chair of the Federal Reserve, Janet Yellen. I mean, I don't think either of us ever expected that we would live through a financial crisis. Or even the head of the Digital Indian Foundation, Arvind Gupta. The reason that people are talking about India is massive digitization and financial inclusion that we have done over the last couple of years. Enjoy this week's show. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Warren School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global Head of Research at Wisdom Tree. My co-host is Warren French Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for Long Run and the Future for Investors. We're also going to be joined for the conversation today by with Mobin Tahir, who's Associate Director of Research for Wisdom Tree UK Limited. Uh, please note, I'm registered representative for Side Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a senior advisor at Wisdom Tree. Our discussion is not tied to the offers of investment products and the views our guests are their own and not those of Wisdom Tree's affiliates. We're going to have an extended show in the second half talking about commodities, what's going on in that market, some of the inflation Professors, Professor Siegel has talked about over time on our show. Uh, but Professor, it has been a a newsy week, newsy morning. You got the jobs report, but also very important COVID news. What is? How is the market reacting to all this? Yeah. Uh, okay. So, <laughs> yeah, there's been a little bit of news in the last seven days, haven't there? All right. So, a um, uh, couple of things. Um, one thing that that we've said a long time. I mean. The market wants a fiscal stimulus bill, and the market moves most on that. Um, I mean, even with the you know surprising Trump COVID news, I mean the market you know almost regained all that loss once Pelosi started saying you know we might get a deal, um, and moves up and down much more on the deal. In other words, fiscal stimulus is is is, is much more important. I mean, I think the market says, listen, you know, I, I, I can deal with the Trump presidency. I mean, if, you know, if this is more likely now, uh, you know, he's a moderate Democrat. Uh, I can deal with that. I want fiscal stimulus. Um, the job support I got is, is sort of mixed. Again, it's, 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 it's not important as, you know, all the events politically and the, and the CARES Act, too, and everything that's coming up. So, you know, as far as that's concerned, that's uh, important. As far as the political markets are concerned, um, Trump fell two or three points after the debate, um, not viewed as net good for him, did not reach out to independence, which he needs, but mostly to his core. Um, the COVID news brought him down another two, three points. Now, you know, he's uh, the, the, even with his age and weight problem, I mean, he's an overwhelming failure to get better. I mean, not to succumb to this disease. I mean, just in terms of the treatments that are, that are available to him, he's going to have red remdesivir, he has dexamethasone, he has convalescent plaza. I mean, we, we you know, we get even the Regeneron, the, the, the recent uh, drug that they brought forward asking FDA for emergency use authorization uh, can be used early on. He's, he's going to survive. Um, if he if he if if he you know doesn't really need oxygen just feels bad for a few days and gets back he says hey look at you know I told you it's just like the flu I mean why are we closing down the economy if he gets seriously ill but survives that's more more important because it shows you can get really seriously ill from COVID and that I think would be a, a further blow I mean and and what what I think the markets were right in bringing them down to two three points because. You know, the invincibility like Trump, uh, you know, is uh, taking hydroxychloroquine. He can't get it. Can't get it. You know, Superman can't get it. The, the, the virus is a hoax. Can't get it. Can't get it. I mean, that's sort of been broken. Um, and uh, that might uh, lower a little bit of his invincibility thing. So I think it does really break it down. Um, on the Senate front and politically, Iowa and the betting markets has now moved uh, to the Democrat side. The election were held today, according to the betting markets, the Dems would have a 51-49 hold on um, the Senate, would not depend on the presidency anymore. Now, again, things can change, but um, 
Um, you know, it's the first time that uh, that that uh, that that has happened. So I would say, you know, the the modal uh, choice now is a is a dem takeover of government. Some could say, hey, you know what? Maybe we're lucky we get a conservative on Supreme Court. Man, that's the fourth. Uh, uh, branch of government, maybe, you know, the last branch that <laughs> Republicans have some influence over, the Dems take over the first uh, three on, on that. But again, it's liquidity is the most important thing. They want the CARES Act. Um, you, know, the, 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 you know, the Fed stands ready to come in if there's any further problem. Uh, you know, virus news is honestly mixed. Uh, really, uh, deaths are trending lower. Cases are trending lower, but very, very slow uh, pace. Um, uh, in, in terms of, you know, it's certainly, it's certainly not dis- disappearing, and there is that fear of, you know, w- will there be another wave of people who are indoors and can't get outdoors as much as before? One thing could be said, though, and that is, you know, very clearly, um, you know, if, if if Trump can get it, anyone could get it. Maybe more people will wear masks. More people wear masks. That could really cut down on the transmission and uh, certainly cut down on the uh, number of serious cases uh, going forward. Uh, do, do you make anything of the rotation you're seeing today in the markets? Uh, you know, there's actually been, you could say Trump gets it, um, maybe get fears of more of a shutdown and it, it sort of go back to like what's been working this year. But you're actually seeing the NASDAQ being yeah. hit the most and small caps well, up. Is I, that... think, I think you're right. I mean, I'll tell you, it, it's, it, you're right. There is a fear, oh my God, places will become more cautious. But on the other side, the CARES Act is really going to provide stimulus. I think on the you know for that domestic spending, we are going to have a vaccine. We are going to have it. So they don't forget it is forward looking. Let's bridge it. Let's build up purchasing power for 2021. Um, so yeah, you're right. I mean, you know, people will become a little bit more cautious. You know, again, we'll have to look at what the the data. I do not. You know, I still don't think there's going to be a second wave. I think we're going to have a trend lower. I think the wave has sort of come through on the vulnerable people, and I think more people wearing masks will actually prevent it, and I think that that will, will, will do that. So I think you have an offset. CARES Act, I think, is good for the reopening economy. Um, that has brightened certainly over today compared to before. Um, you know, fears and people say, I'm not going to go to a restaurant now. My God, you know, if, if the White House can get it. Um, and, and, you know, that, that argues on the opposite way. So those two things are pulling each other. And it's not a big difference. I mean, MADDAC is down 2.3. Uh, the S&P 1.3 right now is a one percentage point difference on that. But I think those are two opposing forces that you, you see at work there. Let me uh, remind our listeners, we've got a new feature. You can email in questions, ask Siegel, uh, S-I-E-G-E-L, at wisdomtree.com. Uh, and we've got a number of questions this week, Professor, so I want to I turn to as many of them as we can. Um, one, somebody uh, emailed in about, you know, talking about the elevated multiples for the market, and it, you talk about the low interest rates being supportive of that. Uh, but you also have been talking about these inflation pressures for next year, and so is is one of the things that could be a... a a hindrance to the market is multiple compression for the rising of rates going forward. Right. Um, the and that's a very very good question. Um, my feeling is is that the Fed is going to keep low interest rates really long until infl- inflation runs well above two percent. Uh, not just uh, poised to go above it and stay above it moderately. Um, so yes. Long rates will rise, but slower than inflation. So, you know, if we have 3 to 4% inflation and the long rate rises to 1.5 to 2, wow, that's still terrible for bonds and good for stocks. So, you know, I mean, moderate inflation is good for stocks. High inflation is bad for stocks. As you know, this, the Fed will eventually step in and, you know, slow things down. But moderate inflation, I think, is, is, going, is going to be good for stocks, and they're going to hold the spigot open for liquidity for a much longer time. That's going to feed it. Would they have to clamp down eventually? Yeah, they're, they're, they're going to have to then begin to raise those rates. But by then, you got, you know, you know, you know a lot of firms have locked in, you know, 1%, 2% rates. Uh, you know, and they're going to be paying off at depreciated dollars. Net positive for stocks. 
compression of those P.E. ratios might, might be years down the road. Yeah, this is sort of a related point, but a spinoff. You know, you've talked a lot about the 60-40 portfolio for modern investors and trying to get more equities. Uh, for conservative investors, you know, do they should they be accepting of just lower yields in the safest assets? Do you think for the dividend-paying stocks, is that still something for people who have, you know, fairly high risk aversion as conservative portfolios uh, to do something similar? Um, you know, certainly... The, the the question I think that the bond investors are 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 they going to have happy to see their fixed income portion uh, erode at two three four percent in purchasing power? I mean I mean you know you could stay in cash at zero or even bonds at one to two percent, um, but with inflation at three and four and rising rates you're going to be you're going to be losing to inflation. Is that the price you want to pay for short-term volatility in stocks, for dividend-paying stocks that are safe, that are well-covered, that are paying 2-3%, that are going to have no trouble in this, you know, in this recovery or even a second wave or whatever you want to say. I mean, I, you know, my feeling is the conservative investment is, 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 is you know, higher-quality dividend-paying stocks. Um, they're the ones that I think are, are the safest investment, protection of purchasing power, uh, their uh, yields that will uh, rise with prices, um, um, uh, cash flows that will rise with prices. Um, I think that's, that's, that's your, your safest base. You're paying too much, I think, to just guarantee yourself minus 4% purchasing power, which is what you do in cash, I think, over the next two or three years. And this is maybe a, a good transition to our, our guest that we're going to be talking about on commodities. Somebody emailed in on, uh, we've talked about gold before. You, you know, we've talked about you adding some gold to portfolios that, that, that you oversee uh, or, or give some advice on. And uh, the somebody asked about broad commodity baskets, which used to have a sort of negative correlation to the equity markets, uh, but they've been very disappointing from a return standpoint, and they haven't had as much of the non-negative correlation as a diversifier in portfolios. Is that something with inflation coming back that you might think in a broad diversified commodities fashion you think is, is yeah, interesting? Yeah, so you might, you might get better hedge then. Don't forget, in, in uh, the, the world of the 60s, 70s, that's when commodities were great hedges because we had terrible inflation and that tanked the market. Uh, in, in, the, in, in the recent 10 years, it, 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 you know, deflation is, is, is bad. It's, it means that demand isn't high and there's financial crisis. So we got the negative. That's the flip of the treasury bond from being a bad diversifier to a good diversifier. It's a flip side of commodities being a great diversifier in the 70s, 80s, and a terrible diversifier now. As inflation comes back, I, I think it'll go from being bad diversified to at least a zero uh, correlation and maybe even positive coral, uh, uh, diversifying correlation. Very good. And any, any sort of closing thoughts on the week as we look to the end of the year, thinking about uh, all this volatility? And, and do you think still think a strong November, I'm, December? I'm, I'm hoping this next week isn't filled with quite as much news as this week. We could all calm down and and, uh, you know, I'm looking forward to fiscal stimulus. I really hope a deal is, is struck in Washington. Very good. Thanks for the comments to start the show, Professor. Thank you. Have a great week. Uh, we're, you're listening to Behind the Markets on SiriusXM 132. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. I'd like to welcome our guest, Ed Morse, who's a managing director, global head of commodities research at Citi. Uh, we also have Mobin Tahir, who's an associate director of research for Wisdom Tree in the UK, joining us for the discussion. Uh, Ed Mobin, welcome to Behind the Markets. Pleasure to be with you. Uh, Ed, maybe uh, you could give us some background, uh, you know, as you think about your, your background overseeing commodities for Citi. Tell us a little bit about yourself, how, you know, and, and, and the frameworks you bring to looking at commodities. Um, well, I've been in kind of all aspects of commodities. I've been in commodities as an academic, studying them and teaching about them. I've been in the government um, in charge of uh, commodities at the State Department, and uh, I've uh, been in a hedge fund, doing some transactions in commodities, and for the last bunch of years, I've been at banks. So I started the commodity research units at the three major banks that didn't have them, uh, Lehman Brothers, which then went under, 
uh, not my fault necessarily, uh, Credit Suisse, and now at City, where I've been for a decade. So how would you say, the as, as the, your clients who are consuming your research, how would you say you know, the, the mentality towards allocating to commodities has changed. You, heard, you probably heard a little bit from Professor Siegel on some of the, the asset allocation case, but how, how, how do you view uh, just the, the general reception to commodities and portfolios and people who are, who are looking for your feedback? Sure. So I think it's a little bit new, more nuanced uh, than uh, the conversation that you had earlier. Uh, actually, assets under management and commodities grew after the first quarter, they grew into the second quarter, and uh, into the third quarter until until early in September. Uh, so there's been positive flows. The positive flows have been uh, mostly into uh, precious metals and uh, and some other um, uh, other industrial metals. But the flows were into oil uh, through the middle of the second quarter and uh, and really into the end of August. Uh, I think the one critical issue about um, commodities at the moment is uh, that, um, in general, uh, most commodities are uh, at the point of uh, uh, of where they are on their on their own cost structures. Uh, they are confronting a period of extended disinvestment or lack of incremental investment. Uh, so the world as a whole is living off of investments that were made in the first decade of the century. Um, this is particularly true uh, across metals. And uh, we're getting to the point where the incremental demand uh, is going to be pushing uh, into higher cost commodities. So uh, that should mean that when we get through the pa- pandemic, sometime by the end of next year, we should see the forward curve structure of commodities moving from what we call a contango, namely where the prompt price is trading cheaper than the deferred price, uh, into a situation where the prompt price is trading at a premium to the deferred price. And indeed, we expect that to happen uh, in oil and gas as well as in uh, most metals. So that actually should be a facilitator of investments into commodities. The commodity investor from the financial perspective Really invests in uh, in uh, it's sort of an irony. They if you if you believe you should be long commodities, you don't invest next year or the year after. But the liquidity is in the prompt part of the curve. Commodity baskets generally trade from the prompt to the second month, or the second month to the third month, and that means when you have a, a soft market where the prompt price is lower than the next month. Uh, the investor actually loses money on the roll from one month to the next. Whereas if the market is stronger and the prompt price is higher than the deferred price and you roll from one month to the next, you make a positive roll yield. Uh, And if you think the underlying is going up, you can benefit from the combination of the positive roll yield and um, and the uh, inflation that's occurring inside the commodity. So if, if you look back at the so-called uh, super cycle for commodities, which dominated the first decade of the century, uh, we had uh, certainly uh, through much, much of it uh, before and after the great financial crisis, both of those happenings in the market. You had a strong market, it was backward dated, and the underlying price structure went up. So it was a boom for commodities, and uh, yes, to some degree, it was a diversifier, uh, but it, uh, 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 it, it is a diversifier for several other reasons than the reasons that I'm, I'm talking about now. These are just underlying aspects of uh, where we see the market going. Yeah, that's such an important point. It is pretty complicated. These the, the, the contango and backwardation, the upward sloping futures curve, the downward sloping futures curve. Uh, you know, I, and and I when I studied it in my CFA textbooks, they you know they used to teach you that you always got this backwardation. There was some natural backwardation. You got positive roll yields and and sort of look factored like interest payments or, or dividend yields, where you just got this additional payment. Uh, then it started costing you a lot to roll the futures. Do you, do you have a sense? You know, in uh, these are all predictions and, and guesstimates, but when you think about the cost recently versus what you think the cost could be going forward, any any sense how broad commodities baskets that overall cost versus role, positive role could could change? 
Yeah, so um, uh, we think that uh, we're, we're at the point where it could change very quickly. Now, there's a lag effect in part because of COVID. And what COVID did was to cut demand for commodities across the planet. Um, they were mostly hit in terms of uh, transportation fuels, not a surprise. Inventories built significantly. Inventories are now drawing down significantly. Um, as we look at just pure supply and demand, in the fourth quarter of this year, we expect that the supply side is down by around 9 to 10%. That's 9 million barrels a day in a 100 million barrel a day market. Part of that is not voluntary. U.S. production um, had a peak at around 13 million barrels a day. It's now under 11 million barrels a day. So U.S. production has declined uh, because of a lack of investment, uh, essentially. And we don't see that returning uh, until maybe the middle of next year at the earliest. And meanwhile, U.S. production will continue to decline. So some of this decline is from a lack of investment. The U.S. is not the only place where investment has been curtailed. Basically, the oil and gas industry has shut off capital spending. So uh, that will have ripple effects that will last for a while. But uh, definitely with uh, the lost production on the one hand from nature and the lack of cap spending, and on the other hand from cuts that were taken by Saudi Arabia, Russia, uh, and a group of countries that are that we call OPEC plus um, production is supply is down a good nine million barrels a day year on year. Demand has been actually creeping up here and there uh, through thick and thin, and we believe that in the fourth quarter, on average, demand will be down year on year, not by nine million barrels a day, but more like four million barrels a day. So that means inventories have to be drawing, and the market gets tight. Um, and just to pinpoint this, uh, whether you look at a month as a whole or the last couple of weeks, in the last couple of weeks, if we look at observable inventory where we have high-frequency data releases, that includes countries like Japan and the United States um, and a bunch of other places where you get weekly snapshots of where inventory are, inventories are, um, in the last week, the world saw high-frequency data inventory declining by three and a half million barrels a day. And it was three million barrels a day the week before that. That's an awful lot of decline that uh, you would not expect happening. Indeed, in September, you'd expect inventories to be building after the summer driving season is over. So I'd say by sometime next year, we think that the market will have two features to it. One, uh, the prom price will go up then it will go up more than the deferred price, which will also go up. So we think the deferred price of oil and gas and a lot of other commodities are understating where the supply-demand balance will be. Uh, there are things that are responsible for that that I'm happy to talk about, but we think the prime price will go up. So we, we think the market will turn backward-dated, and we think with that, the very healthy additions to assets under management uh, through structured products of one sort or another for commodities will rise again, um, and the investors will benefit from that combination of uh, reflation trade on the one hand and the monthly roll yield that uh, we all learned about in textbooks uh, and that investors actually spend a lot of time thinking about. Hi, Ed. It's uh, Mubin Tahir here. Uh, it's interesting you mentioned the reflation trade, and Professor Siegel was just talking about uh, inflation as being something that could uh, uh, really trigger the lure for commodities going forward. Uh, with the Fed now targeting average inflation uh, and likely to remain accommodative for longer, do you see the role of commodities as inflation hedges becoming even more important going forward? Well, we've seen it already. So certainly uh, the gold play, which is not ephemeral, usually lasts several years. Um, that is in part um, uh, a, uh, a risk play, but it's also in part an inflation play. Uh, so we, we are seeing it already on the precious metal side with both gold and silver. Um, the financial flows have been um, 
quite mixed up until now. Long-term investors are sitting on the sidelines when it comes to uh, commodities, but um, we see in some commodities that uh, that the investor community has really discovered that uh, the supply-demand balance is on their side. It certainly is true in two significant areas already. One is um, in uh, metals that go into catalysts in cars, so platinum and palladium. Uh, they are in short supply. We've seen prices uh, now moving with macro sentiment, but on, on the whole, prices have been moving up. And that's uh, a supply-demand issue, and it's going to be with us because the supply is limited, um, the material is needed, uh, and uh, demand, uh, demand is going to go up. If you think about who buys platinum and palladium, other than in the jewelry business, which is a minor element for it. It's really the automotive industry. If we look at recent data in the automotive industry, uh, both in the U.S. and in China, um, recent month-on-month, year-on-year, put us exactly where we were on the manufacturing side or higher in the case of China in 2019. So um, there are parts of the economy that have a pull on commodities that have rebounded and look like they're rebounding in a very, very healthy way. If we uh, think about oil, um, and this is uh, absolutely a call that we feel strongly about, um, the drop in inventory levels, and I mentioned uh, what it is, theoretically 9 million barrels a day of less supply and 4 million barrels a day of less demand should be a global inventory draw of 5 million barrels a day. That's really extraordinary and exceptional and probably never has happened before for as long a period of time as it looks like it's going to be happening now. And I mentioned not the world as a whole, but uh, high-frequency data, which indicate, you know, 3.5 million barrels a day of an inventory draw. You get to an inflection point uh, pretty quickly. We think that inflection point will be reached uh, by early next year where um, the market has to pay attention to it. Um, we see clear measures of it. If we look at uh, real oil, physical oil versus paper-traded oil, um, and look at the differentials between some physical oil and paper oil, uh, the market looks a lot tighter. Uh, the forward curve looks very, very flat for oil at, at the moment. Uh, the uh, Individual streams of oil uh, have gone up relative to uh, where the paper trade is. The you know, Russian crude had been selling at a discount to the main marker for the world, which is Brent oil, uh, ice Brent. It was trading at a uh, at a discount. Now it's trading at a premium. Uh, that's an indication that the physical market is reflecting a, uh, more tightness than the financial market is at the moment. We were talking about, uh, you mentioned some things on, on gold and silver being, uh, or gold being, F, you know, not being just a short-term thing. They tend to be a few-year trade. Uh, you know, something that some people have a hard time valuing gold. They're not really knowing what is fair value. Like, how do you think about just the run-up we've had? It's, it's come so far this year. You know, you think about the, 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 the next few years for gold and silver. How do you think through those, those concepts? Sure. So uh, we think about them both together and separately. We think about uh, gold as being an inevitable, attractive investment in a world of low or zero interest rates. And as you were talking on the call before I got on it, um, there was a pretty big consensus that we're going to be in a very low interest rate environment for a very long time, and not three or six months, but uh, two, three, or four years. So with that, uh, gold becomes an attractive investment uh, for um, macro investors of all stripes, and uh, we don't think the opportunity is going away anytime soon. We think that with every sell-off, there is an opportunity to buy, um, and we think the sell-offs coincide with macro events that uh, cause holders of gold to need to uh, get liquidity to 
deal with whatever's happening in some other market, usually the equity market. So gold tend- has tended to fall when equity markets have fallen, uh, and then uh, then the investors get back into the commodity with that drop in price. We're looking at gold um, this winter breaching 2000 and uh, breaching perhaps $2,200 an ounce uh, by a year from now. Uh, the sell-off to below 1900 uh, was a function of what happened in other markets. Silver, we think, has some other attributes to it. Some of them are uh, the fact that silver is a fundamental part of photovoltaic cells. Um, there is demand for silver uh, in the jewelry market as there is for gold in the jewelry market, but it's an industrial commodity as well. And and it has financial market uh, uh, relationships with gold. Um, sometimes people call it the poor man's gold. But what it actually is and what we look at closely is the ratio between silver and gold. And we think that ratio is going to be uh, improving, which means that we think that for every percentage increase in gold prices, there's going to be a higher percent increase in silver prices. So we are you know, we're looking at that ratio carefully. Uh, we think silver can get to the $45, $50 range uh, 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 with greater, greater certainty uh, the way we analyze it than uh, gold getting to the $2,300 range. So, um, Ed, it's yes. Go ahead. Sorry. Sorry. Uh, yeah, it was very interesting when you mentioned uh, photovoltaic cells uh, for silver. It's, uh, I mean, one of the um, strong drivers of uh, future demand for industrial metals and, and even industrial precious metals is, is indeed uh, the uh, their use in growing tech teams like silver's use in photovoltaics and copper's use in 5G. Do you think the market is is really recognizing these? teams uh, as, uh, as something uh, that, you know, you should look at when looking at industrial metals? Or are industrial metals still just cyclical commodities in the eyes of markets, or, or is the thematic case really becoming stronger? Well, the thematic case has become extremely stronger, and in particular uh, related to battery metals, uh, which include cobalt, manganese, nickel, lithium, of course, uh, 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 rhodium to some degree. Uh, so, yes, the case for battery metals is quite clear. Um, there are some countervailing aspects of it. Um, uh, if you look at some ESG issues, especially on the social and governance issues, where uh, there is a, a desire to find alternatives to cobalt, um, and there w- well might be in the market uh, because of the reputational risk associated with it. But yes, battery metals are there. On copper side, um, there are uh, several things at, at, at work, um, which uh, brings copper together with aluminum, although their supply-demand uh, relationships are, uh, are a bit different from one another. But um, you have uh, two things happening with copper. Copper is definitively related to expectations about China. Uh, and, yes, China is uh, uh, in the uh, copper market like it is in the thermal coal market, more than 50% of what is traded uh, in the world. So um, optimism about the Chinese economy uh, brings optimism about copper. We have uh, developed a, uh, a kind of copper leading indicator uh, related to uh, the credit impulse in China and the uh, likelihood of uh, what's happening in the Chinese market uh, to increase uh, fiscal stimuli uh, of one sort or another, uh, all of which uh, has a copper component to it. You talked about uh, the power grid to some degree, and yes, the power grid is being expanded, uh, and it's being expanded uh, uh, as uh, a bunch of things are occurring in China, one being having a smarter, faster grid, uh, and the other, the change in the structure of where power is uh, generated and where it's used, which is creating a need for uh, more long-distance, smarter uh, delivery of, of copper. So there is a China element to 
uh, to the copper market, uh, independent of uh, you know the overall uh, electricity demand for copper. Copper also, uh, on the China side, is related to uh, the housing market. It's related to what's happening in cities. It's related to you know the property market directly, not just for wiring in new buildings, but for all of the appliances that go into new construction. Uh, particularly household construction, so it's uh, uh, it, it's got uh, very distinct China economy-related aspects to it, along with the ones that you were talking about. Yeah, that's a great, uh, you know, when you talked about the the super cycle you had with with, um, with commodities earlier in the decade, and you know, a lot of it was driven by China growth and China being a, the largest consumer of the commodities. When you think about the long-term prospects, is the is India the next big country that could become a big consumer of commodities and help drive another super cycle? How do you think about sort of these long-term prospects of, of commodity demand? So we need we need a bunch of things happening. We, there is no country uh, of scale that can replicate what China has done. Uh, India is not a top-down driven economy. Yes, the government can provide stimuli of one sort or another, but uh, it's private sector driven. And uh, China had 20-some years of forced fixed asset investment, uh, with fixed asset investment rising 23, 24, 25% per annum for two decades or slightly longer than that. And we find that hard to imagine um, in the case of India or in the case of any you know, combination of, uh, of other uh, economies. But yeah, there are things happening that are definitively commodity related uh, in parts of the world, um, and India is one of them. I'd say the, uh, the intriguing one from multiple perspectives is the African continent. So we know demographically that Africa leads the world, not just in percentage terms, but in absolute numbers of the number of people added to the population who are under 18 years old. And these zero to 18 year olds are now entering the 18 plus year old part of the economy uh, of the African continent in general. So uh, you have a continent where the numbers are kind of stunning. I'll understate them a little bit, but not much uh, because I'm rounding numbers. But basically, um, 3% of the electricity generated in the world is generated in Africa. And uh, of that 3%, two-thirds of it uh, are in two countries, Egypt and South Africa. So we have a country demographically that is about to explode. Uh, where per capita income uh, is also growing at a healthy rate. Um, and that means that uh, almost anything that's commodity-related as raw material is going to see significantly higher demand across that continent. Uh, some of it will be um, in power generation. Some of it will be in transportation fuel. Uh, some of it will be in appliances that are very commodity intensive as i just mentioned so uh so uh yes uh we don't think that uh just because you might be able to think about the peaking globally of transportation fuel demand from fossil fuels it doesn't mean that that generalization is going to hold in um in africa and it doesn't mean that other commodities won't benefit significantly uh, as a result, and indeed, we we can think of commodities that uh, are, are are not going to be inflationary. We can think of commodities where uh, the uh, combined prospects of demand and supply are bearish rather than bullish. And uh, I would pick you know the bulk commodities in that regard. Uh, the bulk commodities being iron ore, uh, thermal coal, and coking coal. The Iron ore side of it is kind of easy to understand. Uh, China's demand for iron ore uh, was partly related to fixed asset investment, partly related to urbanization, uh, and partly related to lack of a scrap market. So China built over that 20-year period that uh, I was talking about a, a few seconds ago, they built 
uh, at least 10 cities of a million people a year for, uh, for 20 years in a row. Um, and the amount of steel going into those uh, new buildings and the amount of glass going into them and the amount of copper wire going into to that was absolutely stupefying. That urbanization thrust in China is over and, um, and it's over at a time when a scrap market is emerging so that the underlying demand for not just China, but the world as a whole for iron ore is on its way down. Um, and that's happened at a time when, uh, as a result of that uh, super cycle we talked about in the first decade of the century, uh, a lot of investment went into uh, finding and developing more raw materials. And when it came to copper, not a lot that was less expensive was found when it comes to iron ore and coal, the world found significant stockpiles of reserves to develop that were cheap rather than expensive. So we've got, um, in one set of commodities at least, a shift on the demand side to a lower level of demand growth, even negative demand growth, and more than ample supply for decades ahead that won't require much in the way of new investment. But that's just not true across all of, all of commodity land. It's relatively unique to those commodities. Very, very interesting. We're talking with Ed Morse, who's a global head of commodities research at Citi, uh, and, and uh, you know, interesting views on just what, what's happening in the commodity space generally. Uh, and when you think about the big, big themes for going forward in commodities, um, you know, we talked about some of the, some of the, the big baskets on, on gold and, and oil. Uh, when, when you think about the other major themes for the big parts of, of uh commodities. Agriculture actually seems to be another big part, there, and there's been some, uh, dis, I guess, disruption in China, as we talked about with the consumers. Anything in, in the agriculture market that stands out? Any Anything happening there? So there are a bunch of things that are happening in China uh, uh, affecting the agricultural markets as well. I would note that when we think of commodities, we think of investment cycles, the amount of time it takes to marshal capital and to um, get results from the marshaling of capital. The agricultural market is absolutely the shortest cycle market across all commodities. They're all, you know, they're, 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 ten, they're, they're, they're the kind of most, uh, most commodity-like of all commodities in that uh, they have a lumpy, uh, a lumpy supply side to them. It's seasonally based. It's dependent on wild cards like the weather, rainfall, and heat um, in particular. But... Um, a good year can be followed by a bad year. Uh, a good year can be followed by a better year. Uh, good years for uh, row crops tend to m mean that more is invested in in terms of um, in terms of seeding in the, se in the sowing season. Uh, so you don't have cycles that are are very long lived. There is an important Chinese element to it. One of them is overtly political. At the moment, we have a U.S.-China trade agreement that has as it, as it in its roots um, a political issue, namely uh, the agricultural sector in the United States and the desire of the U.S. government to have it benefit. So there are targets related to soybean production and, uh, 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 and corn in particular, uh, uh, with exports of those commodities to um, to China, and um, and we have weather conditions that are making the market look a little tighter than it might otherwise have been. So, so short cycle, it looks pretty healthy um, when you have things like the um, swine flu epidemic, and you have herds of uh, of pigs that are destroyed because of the uh, swine flu epidemic, uh, that turns out to be you know, pretty decent for those selling into the market that have healthy herds. So it, again, uh, leads to you know, optimism on that side, but it's not a long-lived, durable play in the same way that, um, that it is in uh, other commodities that have a much longer uh, investment cycle and between the decision to uh, grow production, uh, marshal the capital, orchestrate the service companies. You know, you're talking about a six- or seven-year uh, period between the decision 
to expand production and actually have it expanded uh, as opposed to maybe a year or 18 months on the agricultural side. Ed, it's interesting you mentioned uh, trade wars, and of course this is something that affects pretty much all commodities and has been affecting since 2018. Uh, but this year they've sort of gone to the background with, with all the COVID-related uh, crisis. Do you think the trade wars and trade-related issues will come back to haunt uh, the broader basket or, or support uh, things like gold going forward? You know, what will be the impact of trade wars uh, once again, going going forward. So we have actually a binary situation when it comes to trade, and that binary situation is purely a result of the U.S. election. Um, yes, there are things that have occurred during the Trump administration uh, that are longer term in nature, in terms of uh, attitudes towards China. Uh, when it comes to uh, technology issues and uh, cybersecurity and the like. Uh, but if there were to be a change in administration, I think we would see a very rapid and radical change in, um, uh, in the trade side. Part of it would be U.S.-China related. Part of it would be more globally related. Um, and let me give you... Uh, a couple of examples that I find very important. But before I give you the examples, I, I would note, following on your initial observation, that uh, trade was booming in 2017 and 2018. Um, indeed, it was expanding at uh, the most rapid rate of expansion since uh, the decade before that, um, uh, since before and after the great financial crisis. Uh, and if you look at uh, container ship movements as one example of it, um, it had risen back to more than 7% per annum, uh, or doubling effectively in a decade if it were to, were to have lasted. Um, air freight was even more spectacular. It was growing at an annualized rate of over 10%. Um, and that came to a halt. We saw with the trade wars, into the spring of 2018, a slowdown, a dramatic slowdown in the rate of growth of trade, uh, uh, back to roughly half of what it was at the peak, and then slowing either, even further, so that um, if you start looking at what happened in 2019, uh, January 2019 saw every month, February, March, April, May, June, trade volumes shrinking on a month-on-month -month basis, or the growth rate shrinking. And then in June 2019, trade growth turned negative. And it, it was increasingly negative from the summer of 2019 to the winter of 2019-20, when the COVID <laughs> pandemic took over and led to another healthy six months of more negative trade. So it was only this past summer, June, July, that we saw with partial recovery in China, uh, trade globally starting to grow again. Uh, trade growing again is extremely positive for um, commodity demand. Indeed, if you look at physical commodities, roughly half physical trade, uh, you have raw materials, about half of it, and then add on to it processed raw materials, and that's you know, 70, 80 percent of global trade very commodity intensive. Uh, I think what happens with China in the case of a Biden election is two things. One, uh, a change in an approach to China, uh, uh, and part of it would be based on uh, an environmental issues. China and the U.S. together created the Paris Accord in 2015. The uh, people who were the negotiators of that on the U.S. side uh, part of uh, the Biden campaign. They would be in the Biden administration. Uh, Chinese government has reaffirmed uh, some of those uh, 2015 Paris Accord uh, 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 elements and have gone even further in now having a date for going to a zero carbon environment. So I think we're going to see cooperation on the part of the U.S. and China in this. I also suspect that 
the U.S. will return to international institutions, of which it's a member. Uh, we'll go back to the WTO uh, adjudication process. Uh, that WTO adjudication process says that some of the tariffs that the U.S. imposed on Chinese imports, on European imports, on imports from other countries, um, violate international agreements. And uh, either, uh, either you remove those um, trade impediments or, um, or you pay the penalty of it. So I think uh, if we have the rule of law emerging again in the trade system, uh, we will have uh, a lot more U.S.-China cooperation, and we'll see trade growth globally getting back to what have been historically healthy levels, le levels that are similar to, if not higher than, the level of global GDP growth. So, uh, yeah, I think trade is a critical issue, and I think we have a potentially really binary outcome of the U.S. election on what might happen to the trade system. When our final, maybe our, probably our last question, Ed, but when you think about just sort of summarizing the conversation, we, we talked about some of the, the bullish case. If you think about the risks to commodities, one of the things you often hear is the dollar is, is tied to pricing in commodities. Maybe you could sort of say yes, yes or no, and then any other sort of closing <laughs> thoughts on the risk to the commodity outlook. Yeah, so on the dollar, I'd say yes and no. It's not <laughs> yes or no, but um, uh, in the emerging market world, and particularly the commodity emerging market world, there is, you know, too many countries tying their currency. Currencies are effectively tied to the U.S. dollar that um, it's going to be very hard to accelerate the uh, decline of the role of the dollar, which has been, you know, politically motivated. And it's not clear the degree to which, it, well, it is clear the degree to which targeted sanctioned countries like Russia or um, uh, or Venezuela might be, uh, you know, still intending to move away from the U.S. dollar. The European Union has strived to make the euro a global reserve and transaction currency, uh, and are still striving striving to do it. But so I say it's it's mixed uh, and not clear. Nor is it clear that uh, we're going to run out of time. Ed, this okay, was. Yeah, no, thank you so much. This has been a great conversation. You can follow Ed uh, at Cities Research, Global Head of Commodities Research, Mobin Taher from Wisdom Tree UK Limited. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. Thanks to our producer, Patty Hall, sound engineer, Deanna Simpkins. Thanks, everybody. Have a great week. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about Wisdom Tree, visit wisdomtree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.